over time, mm-hmm. that's going to just look more and more ridiculous, I think. Um, and like, I don't know what will have to shift. I don't know whether it will be, um, you know, a burning presidency or something we can't envision years down the line or, you know, people like, you know, taking to the streets and like smashing windows or whatever. Like eventually something is going to have to uh, shift because you just cannot keep pretending that this is a system at all, let alone like a good healthcare system. Right. for all week. Today, Phil and I are sitting down with guest Libby Watson, writer at The New Republic, and one of the top requested revisits to the panel we've ever had. <laughs> when we sat down Easy with to you see for, why. Yeah, for, your, <laughs> for the Kamala Care episode, we got so many messages. We love Libby. She's amazing. Oh, but, no. That's a lot of pressure now. <laughs> no, no. No, it's just, you know, no, no. like, it's just because they have to deal with us so much. so <laughs> And our bad accent impressions. Exactly. Um, Libby, we're so excited to have you because uh, when you were at Splinter, you were one of our favorite uh, sources to read every week on um, the latest fuckery going on in D.C. And now that you're in the New Republic, um, you have continued with the sort of fantastic line of reporting that you've been going on for a while, um, sort of covering the uh, never-ending renegotiation of the healthcare debate. Yes, thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, I try, <laughs> try my best. <laughs> well, I feel like you, you've done one thing that's been so valuable that I'm not sure, maybe there were people doing this, you know, years ago, but I think what you've, you've taken out this like corner of the reporting on it that's like showing people behind the curtain and the sort of like the way that the sort of like wonk or like pundit reality of this sort of thing is made like you've you've done so much to like unpack the the people who are trying to like reconstruct reality around this in a in a in a pretty negative way and like have actually exposed it in ways that i actually had no idea about well thank you yeah i mean i guess living in in dc uh i've been here sort of seven and a half years now i think and um i truly hate it. I do not like living here. And, you know, it's a very pleasant place to live. You know, the, it's a, it's a beautiful city and there is generally like pretty good food and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the weather is, well, the weather sucks, but it, it's, it could be worse. It's, you know, it's not like, <laughs> you know, like Iowa winters or whatever, but the people are just horrible. The people you meet at parties, uh, you know, when you're, at, when you're at a party, you never know, you know, if, if someone that you're talking to might be, you know, might work for Pharma or uh, the Koch brothers or whatever, or even if they don't necessarily work for one of those places, they work for a communications firm or a consulting firm or whatever that has those clients. And God, yeah, they're just everywhere. And, you know, you can't, you know, you couldn't go into a bar on 14th street without, you know, running into some of those people. And, you know, you're the weird one. If, if you said to someone at a party, like, Hey, uh, you're a lobbyist for United health. Like that's shit. You shouldn't do that. Like you would then be the one who had to leave the party rather than the other way around. Um, and I just, it's, it's very, uh, alienating genuinely. Um, you know, you, you do kind of lose friends for, for that kind of thing. Um, so anytime that I have, 
the ability to uh, dunk on those people. Um, I am grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> but you know, what I would say is like, you're, you're not just dunking, right? I mean, it's also like you're, you're giving us the rogues gallery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, uh, when the partnership for America's healthcare future was announced, um, and, uh, you know, it was first being rolled out and, you know, I think it was Politico first reported on them and, you know, who was going to be working for them, Lauren Crawford Schaefer, who used to, who worked for the, the Hillary campaign and worked under Obama, um, at HHS and, uh, you know, these sorts of people, the firms that have done work for them. I think I did a piece for the, the New Republic about the, some of the firms that had worked for Obama, then pivoting to work for the partnership. Um, mm -hmm. And man, that, that stuff just sucks. Like, you, you know, you really, right. you, you can't, you can't talk about it enough because these are the people, you know, it's so rare to have, you know, a somewhat mainstream media outlet that will, you know, people aren't mentioning that on CNN. People don't talk about that on CNN. Like they're much more likely to have Lauren Crawford Shaver on to talk about, you know, the, the problems with Medicare for all than they are to say, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? Didn't you work for Hillary Clinton and, you know, Obama <laughs> who claimed to want healthcare reform and things like that. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. You must be really unpopular at parties. I'm sorry. You're always welcome to come to New York and <laughs> hang out with us. Yeah. I mean, the, the secret is to, to blame it on that. Um, and therefore no one has to think about other reasons I might be unpopular at parties. <laughs> um, you know, it's fine. I have a great cat, you know, it's, I like, I like to play video games. I don't I don't need to be going to the parties anyway. Yeah. I mean, so all these people that you uh, could run into at the grocery store or wherever, you know, um, that DC is crawling with, what have they been up to recently? If uh, people have been, I don't know, stuck in the uh, impeachment K-hole and that's all they've been watching. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely have not been joining them in that K-hole. Um, you know, it's... Us it, neither. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, I feel like it's actually kind of been a little quiet recently, although I did mm -hmm. note that the, 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 maybe the week that I started at the New Republic, I tried signing up for the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future email list again. And it's just somehow, like, the email, it didn't go through or something. Like, they lost that request oh, they lost in the mail it. or something. Hmm. Uh, so I know I was pretty upset about it. Um, I should probably try again. But, um, you seem to pretend that you write for modern healthcare. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Just completely lie about my outlet. Um, they must have put a at tnr.com filter on it or something. Um, but yeah, I I feel like it's been I feel like it's been weirdly quite probably because of impeachment stuff. Um, but there was that terrible Politico piece uh, last week um, by Ezekiel Emanuel. Um, One about of our how, favorites. Yeah. Yeah. About how good the uh, Affordable Care Act actually was um, mm -hmm. and how <laughs> all of the, all of the left critics are just so wrong to uh, to talk about uh, further reforms. Um which just, you know, man, I don't know. I I like I don't even know what you say. Just like I I luckily like I think most of America is not reading Politico, of course, but the very important people here are definitely reading it. Right. Uh, well, that was sort of what I was wondering was like, you know, if you read like the history of like how people tried to kill like Medicare, it was sort of like you it, it seemed like pretty easy to do. You just like go to the go to like the the files of like the American Medical Association and just like, you know, they all smell like tobacco and, you know, <laughs> you can sort of like, it's just a couple of people and it's like pretty recognizable who they are. Mm -hmm. But it seems like with this, the effort is like 
more diffuse. There's not like a clear, as clear a public face. And so they're like relying on these surrogates. Like, how is it? What's the sort of like architecture of this? Like, who's who are like the biggest players that you see as, as being important in like how do they how do they relate to one another? Yeah, it's a good question, and you know, I think actually it could be time for a piece to just to, to kind of tease all of that out and put it on, you know, in one piece of paper. Because like the last thing I wrote about it was about when Andrew Perez uh, got the the information on um, the mm-hmm. partnerships, uh, the 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 sort of libs who had been working for the partnership, and th- that was really helpful because you know among those were um, you know former Obama people like Bully Pulpit and everything. And this is part of the trouble is like you know, these groups, they tend to employ a lot of different lobbying firms and a lot of different lobbying shops. I have never worked for one of these firms and I don't, I don't have a ton of specifics on how they do it. But if you notice, like, if you look at the the lobbying filings for any really, you know, significantly Mm -hmm. big corporation, a lot of them, they'll employ like 50 different lobbyists or something, um, you know, or like, you know, 15 different lobbying firms or whatever. And, you know, I think that could partly be just to, uh, you know, make it, make it diffuse and harder to pin down. But I think it's also because, you know, they're paying for individual lobbyists connections. Um, So if they want, if someone at United Health wants to, uh, you know, go after someone who is, if they want to get like Ron Wyden or friggin', I don't know, like uh, Amy Klobuchar or whatever on a, on a mm-hmm. bill, then they're going to go for a lobbying firm where they have like former staffers or whatever. Um, who are working at that lobbying firm. But yeah, so anyway, so it's, it's all very like diffuse and so on. Uh, obviously the partnership is always, always out there getting ratioed and doing, doing the laws. <laughs> The Lord's mm-hmm. work that um, I think they, they've been running ads at pretty much every debate. I think last time there was a debate, I opened YouTube and there was like a huge half page ad from the partnership, um, even mm-hmm. though the debate wasn't even streaming on YouTube, um, <laughs> just in case. But yeah, I mean, I think that with the presidential campaign, everyone is kind of until until like a week ago, they didn't think Bernie could do it at all. Um, so they're very right. much like catching up. I wouldn't be surprised if... You know, if Bernie wins Iowa or New Hampshire or whatever and like the surge continues, then we might see more like concerted Medicare for all attacks. I've just there was like a thing in the Hill yesterday or today even that was like, oh, now people are asking Bernie how he's going to pay for it. And, you know, we'd been asking Warren because we thought she was the one that's going to win. And now she's not winning. Uh, I guess we've got to ask Bernie. And, you know, the question is like whether Bernie will like play along with that. And obviously he never does. Right. Well, and I, I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast about how the pay for it is really a losing argument. Um, mm. And it is a frequent, frequent refrain from the media class and sort of circulates in the public sphere. I mean, like, how much do these lobbyists play into like how that messaging ends up also in the media? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to say, because, you know, I, I would say that, when you have people in the media sort of, especially like opinion people, whatever, um, you know, I, I, I do think a lot of what controls or influences how mainstream media people write is not, you know, that they're getting emails from Lauren Crawford Schaefer or whatever. I mean, I'm sure some mm-hmm. people are, but like, it's mostly not that it is mostly conventional wisdom. And, you know, I have talked right. to to people who are healthcare reporters at big mainstream outlets who tell me that they like my work and that they wish that they could, be more like, I don't know what the word is, you know, that they could do more, I guess, to represent my side of the the argument, I guess, you know, the single payer side of the wow, argument. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, that's, and, you know, these are very reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're out there, these people. Um, and like sometimes, you know, you end up with like, 
these uh, kind of individuals at big organizations who you can tell are kind of sympathetic to uh, left politics or, or whatever, but just what you can get through an editor at different outlets varies so much. Like I, <laughs> you know, working at the New Republic and, and Splinter before, it's it's quite rare, I think, to be able to, and, you know, I'm, I'm an opinion writer, you know, like it's okay for me to have mm-hmm. opinions as my job, but it's different if you are, say, you know, a writer at The Hill or Politico or, you know, one of those places, um, it's mm-hmm. a lot harder to, there, there's so much institutional pressure to, say things like, you know, how, uh, leftists have yet to answer how it'll be paid for or, right. you know, th- things like that. Um, you know, there is just a tremendous amount of pressure and, you know, that changes the framing of articles as well. And like the things that their editors suggest to them or even their editors, you know, they may feel right. that the people above them will be upset or whatever. Um, so it's, it's almost as if they sort of set the tone that everyone feels they have to stick to at the end of the day. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, we've known about this for years. It's like manufacturing consent, you know, right. it's the whole, that whole thing like it, but it is particularly interesting, I think with this healthcare debate, because over the past few years, there's been this like explosion of people on the left, uh, making a completely counterintuitive, like, you know, argument in terms of, you know, beltway common wisdom or whatever. Like, I mean, God, if you go back, I've done a couple of pieces now where I've gone back and looked at the stuff that people would write, <laughs> uh, around the Affordable Care Act, like in 2010, 2011. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it is There's a bonkers. lot of great shape takes around yeah. that time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is bonkers to read the stuff that people said. Like, uh, for our decade-end, like, package that we had, um, I did a piece on the Affordable Care Act and, like, how the way we see it has changed and everything. And, you know, going back and reading stuff people wrote at the time, like... Uh, you know, Ezra Klein wrote in 2011 that the Affordable Care Act was near universal health care. Like, <laughs> I know. Um, and like even in 2011, you should not have been stupid enough to write that. But uh, yeah, the assumptions, you know, I, the individual mandate as well, stuff that people would say about the individual mandate back then was completely insane and divorced from reality. You know, had all of these like healthcare economists saying like, well, the thing is you need an individual mandate to uh, prevent the free rider problem of, un- you know, like uninsured people going <laughs> to the hospital and getting free care. And it's like, have you not heard of bills? Like you're a healthcare economist and you don't know that people who go to the hospital receive a bill. Like, right. <laughs> it's just, it, it's completely insane. But I, and I think that has changed so much. Like the way even mainstream outlets talk about healthcare has changed so much in the past few years, you know, all of this like explosion of stories about medical debt and, um, you know, uh, unfair billing practices and stuff, that stuff has, is very different, um, than the way it used to be. So, you know, I think there is this like tension between the way that, you know, your Ezekiel Emanuel see it. Um, you know, I, I, I tweet about this, mm-hmm. but, um, someone I know who works in a very big DC think tank overheard in the cafeteria one day, some, some, you know, two people that work there talking about, uh, the 2020 election. And he was saying, Oh, you know, people are, people are crazy if they, if they go for, for Medicare for all, you know, candidates or whatever. I mean, what's the uninsured rate? It's like 10%, right? That's really good. Wow. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And there, and like, it's crazy because the rest of the country is just, you know, like most Americans are like very 
worried about healthcare costs and prices and terrified of losing their insurance. And anytime they actually have to use the healthcare system, they hate it or whatever. But then you just have this mm-hmm. contingent in DC that has good employer-sponsored insurance. They probably rarely have to use it. They probably don't have anyone who's chronically ill or disabled in their life. Um, and certainly if they, if they do, they have good insurance. So it makes a big difference. And they just don't, they do not understand that. I think, I think that that tension between, you know, the, the, the beltway understanding of how healthcare policy, you know, the direction needs to go in is in complete tension with the reality. Um, and yeah, it's, it's causing a lot of, uh, friction. (laughs) So, I mean, that's really, that's really interesting because I think one way that this gets simplified and I'm not saying it's not true, but it's, but I think what you're saying actually shows how complex it is. But like one way it gets simplified is like, there's these, there are these lobbyists. There are these like grass tops, whatever organizations Mm. they like spring up and then they like, they plant the seeds and then everything just sort of like falls into place. But I think what you're saying is there is this, there's a cultural part of it as well, which is like, it's not just the fact that the partnership for America's healthcare future is like writing bad tweets. It's it's also that you have this like community of, I don't want to say like epistemic community, but you have this like community of people who talk to one another and, and they have a set of beliefs about the world and how it's supposed to work that informs how any information is processed, right? That like that, 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 sort of phenomenon the 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 term like beltway logic gets used too much but like that phenomenon perpetuates and actually makes it cheaper for organized uh pharma and whatever to like do their work right right? yeah uh that is a really good way to put it and i feel like you should have my job um that's (laughs) really i yeah i mean that is exactly exactly what it is um you know it's living in dc like i said there is this group think. Um, mm-hmm. and I've been aware of it for a long time. Like, you know, in 2016, I was one of the only people I knew or worked with or whatever, who was a Bernie supporter. Um, and you know, it was, it was kind of like a joke, you know, like, Oh, that's Libby. She's the lefty, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think since Trump's has definitely been like, since, you know, rather since Hillary lost, I feel like there's been more acceptance of that, uh, stance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I definitely have friends who were Hillary people in 2016 who have, since changed their politics drastically because, you know, they realized that that, that approach was wrong. Um, right. that, that's definitely encouraging. Um, but there is still this like just incredibly powerful set of uh, incentives uh, in DC to, uh, you know, to, to say the right things and to not be too out there. Um, you know, if you if you work for even like quite a progressive, you know, think tank or nonprofit organization Mm -hmm. or or whatever, there are, there are career incentives to not being too out on a limb, um, to not declaring your allegiances or whatever, you know, I would say if you want a fun afternoon, just like plug some of the big, like progressive think tank names into the FEC database um, and see who they're giving to. Cause Oh, that's, that's really funny. Um, that's a fun afternoon. I would say <laughs> we were, uh, this is, we you, were going you know through, how we have fun. Yeah. We <laughs> were going exactly through and putting in uh, the names of artists that we knew here in New York or like big international artists. We put in Judith Butler. Oh, Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 There you are know. some, there are some funny ones, news organizations you can do too. That that's good. Um, that's a fun one. I mean, they really like the FEC is, is a source of, of 
great, great amusement in that way. Um, mm-hmm. Very grateful for them for doing that. Um, yeah. But the, thing, the thing that was surprising to me, though, was like, then we went to the McKinsey, the people from like employees <laughs> of McKinsey. Right, right. And they ended up contributing. A lot of them contributed to Bernie. Right. Man, and so I wonder, is like, is it is it your sense that there's also like a sort of silent, not majority, but like a silent plurality among the people that you deal with that are just sort of inhibited from, you know, talking about this? Is that, you know, it's very interesting. I was thinking about this today because I was thinking about how everyone's got the knives out for Bernie. And if he wins a couple primaries, it's going to get really serious. Obviously there's those yeah, like sure. super pack ads running. Um, and I don't know what they're going to, everyone keeps talking about how he hasn't been vetted and all oh, the oppo is going to be so bad. And it's like, it's going to be about how he was, a you know, like he stole electricity or whatever when he was, when he was in his twenties, which is just fucking cool as hell. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, uh, yeah, that's that's a point in the pro column. Yeah, I know it's dope. Um, but you know, I was thinking about that and how the the establishment um, is is going to react if it, if it starts to look real. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are like I it's 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 generational too. You know, I will say that like people who are closer to you know my age, like you know like mm-hmm. mid twenties, late twenties, like they uh, they are more likely to. <laughs> Um, be secret Bernie heads or, you know, secret Medicare for all fans or or whatever, Mm -hmm. just as in the the broader population outside DC, um, those people are more likely as well. And definitely the older people are more, uh, more normie, uh, in that way. Um, so there, but there are definitely like, I mean, there's, there's a huge active DSA chapter here. Like there are like tons of cool people doing really cool shit here. Um, but if you are like part of the, if you work at a big, progressive nonprofit or, you know, in Congress or, you know, in any of the, the kind of like politically aligned, I mean, there are lots of, it's a, it's a company town. There's like a lot of little mini industries mm-hmm. here, like lobbying, consulting and communications and stuff. Um, you know, if you work in like those areas, you, there are a lot of pressures to, to keep quiet about it, but at the same time, there are definitely more people than, you would think who right. have, the, have the good opinions. I mean, I feel like part of that has to just be boiled down to like business incentive, plain and simple, right? I mean, it's the business of lobbying against socialized medicine is a storied history, almost as old as the industry of insurance in the United States. You know, um, I, I, I can't, I couldn't imagine that it wouldn't also have something to do with the idea of this is part of the industry and it needs to be protected to save jobs or whatever. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I've thought about this before because, like, there are so many people here who have who are lobbyists and who, you know, to be a lobbyist means that you will lobby for uh, what a client tells you, you know, pays you to lobby for. And in doing so, you have to act like the issue that they are paying you to lobby on is very important matters very much. And that could be something as like, Mm -hmm. you know, obscure and stupid as, Oh, I don't know, like fixing bread prices or something, but it could be like (laughs) random toys. Just uh, throwing that out there, but you know, just pulling it out of thin air. Yeah. 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 Um, it it could be something like completely no one gives a shit about, but it's part of your job as a lobbyist to be like, it is vital that Congress acts now on HR five, three, seven, two. And, um, you know, you have to write an op-ed for the Hill where you're like, this is the most important thing that Congress must do right now. And it's like, you can't possibly, these people can't possibly believe everything that they are paid to say, um, because their brains would explode. Um, 
if they were one day being paid to say Congress must act now on friggin', you know, like 5G infrastructure and then the next day on, um, you know, like regular infrastructure or whatever, you know, it's like there are too many competing things that they are being paid to lobby on. And it's something that has troubled me, like since I moved here really is like, do people move here? Like I did, like when I first moved to DC, I did a master's in political communication because I thought I wanted to be like Josh from the West Wing. You know, I was like, (laughs) I'm going to go to DC and I'm going to change everything. It's going to be great. You know, like really, really believed uh, all the lib bullshit about politics. And it took me like one semester of that master's to be like, oh no, this place sucks. (laughs) terrible. Um, But, uh, you know, for at least a while, I, you know, I like still harbored the delusion that I could work within the like progressive political sphere or whatever and make change or whatever. Um, and over time you, you come to realize how wrong that is, but people do come here thinking that they're going to do that. And then they get to, you know, 30 or whatever. And then suddenly they, they're working on K street lobbying for whoever, um, because they've got student loans or they want to have a nice wedding or they want to redo their kitchen or whatever. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of what I mean. It's like, they're not intentionally doing it. And I, I doubt their job satisfaction is particularly high, right? you know, but part of it is like you come to DC with your Josh Lyman delusions (laughs) and that feeds you right into toxic pessimism, which feeds you into a cycle of like just having to reinforce the status quo and you're an Ouroboros of like out of town weddings at that point right. you know what I mean <laughs> yes no 100% it's 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 something that like it plagues me because you know you meet a lot of really nice people who end up doing really shitty jobs and they might not have been doing a shitty job when you became friends with them but then over mm-hmm. time they they become part of the, that Borg and it's just like, it's very depressing and you don't like to think of people as being super corruptible or whatever. And they don't think of themselves as being corruptible. A lot of people do these jobs and they're like, yeah, this is shitty. Like, you know, the people I'm working for are bad or whatever, but a job's a job or, you know, whatever. I don't really know how, right? how they, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in a way very lucky that I have never kind of had to, uh, participate, you know, I've never had to work for any, I mean, I worked at media matters, which meant working for David Brock, but like, and he sucks and it's terrible. And there's like a lot of awful things about media matters, but (laughs) ultimately like, you know, doing mostly good things like, you know, writing down what Fox news says is like a pretty good thing to do. Um, and there are much worse, (laughs) much worse things that you could have ended up doing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it worries me. It bothers me. Um, and I, I do think one thing, and I touched on this in my last piece about Amy Klobuchar, um, one thing that, you know, could be done to change that is making Congress a better place to work. Um, because it is a shitty place to work, especially when you're younger, you know, people, when I first moved to DC, um, you know, my friend worked on the Hill and she was making something like $27,000 a year or whatever, wow. you know, to, to live in DC where, even then rent cost was, of living is yeah, yeah it's it's crazy like it's not it's not doable unless you have rich parents um mm-hmm. and that attracts a certain kind of psycho uh who's willing to go through that or is affluent enough to go through that and it, it makes the whole the whole city and our national politics so much worse um you know and it's it's like hard to get much like sympathy or support for like <laughs> congressional staff but you know it, it would it would improve things a lot i think well i mean i think Amy klobuchar um abusing her staff is actually a great example of why we need to organize for the labor rights of congressional staff <laughs> right 
Well, what's crazy is that they're legally forbidden from forming unions um, in Congress, oh which is just, I know, I think it was some, I, I, I want to say like the Labor Relations Act in the 30s, um, you know, it was like they outlined a bunch of jobs that were specifically not eligible right. for unionizing and congressional staff was one of them and it's just like never been changed. And, you know, part of the problem is like there's, you know, 535 officers or whatever. So would it be like, you know, each individual office was a union or, you know, was a unit or would it be like all the Democrats are in one unit and all the Republicans are in another, that would be really funny. The Republican wow. congressional <laughs> staff union. Um, that would be great. I mean, it might be a good way to uh, change the politics of the Republican Party, just like draft them all into a union and they can see how see how good it is. Right. See how quickly that false consciousness diminishes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, this is sort of been going on for years now um and you've been following the messaging that's been weaponized what's your uh what's your favorite uh critique of medicare for all to hate right now <laughs> oh that's a great one i mean man i'm so let's get like, some, some rage ranting going <laughs> yeah yeah it's you know i would say the ones that like piss me off the most obviously like the go-to ones are like how will we pay for it or uh wait times or whatever that one that one does piss me off um i guess you know i should do a special shout out to when people uh you know say like look at look at how bad the nhs is um, mm -hmm. in Britain. And, uh, actually one time. So in, uh, 2010, uh, no, 2011, early 2011, I was at UCLA on my year abroad and, um, they held an event. Uh, it was like, a, it was supposed to be like about the tea party. Um, but it was right after all of the affordable carrot stuff and like mm. the midterms and everything. Um, and the panel was, um, some lady who's doing a PhD on the tea party, uh, a local Tea Party activist from like Orange County. Oh boy! And then Michael Dukakis. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Michael was this like a CIA torture program? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, this is how much of a lib I was in 2011. That I was like, oh, this sounds really fun. Um, no, Dukakis, like he he at least at the time he taught at uh, Northeastern, but then when it was cold in Boston, he would come to UCLA to teach a semester there, um, which uh, was pretty big flex. <laughs> yeah, huge flex, huge flex. Um, but anyway, yeah. So the event, like obviously there was a lot of stuff about healthcare, and the the fucking Orange County Tea Party jerk was like, oh, you know, if in Britain, if you have cancer, they just throw you out on the street. They won't. They won't trust you because uh, they won't. Um, they won't treat you because the the National Institute for Clinical Excellence uh, will just throw you out on the street. And I was like, "Hello, I'm British. Um, my stepdad's a doctor. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. It does not happen." And, you know, it's kind of kind of ironic. So many years later, my mom has lung cancer, and she is treated incredibly ably and well and uh kindly and you know uh, just just brilliantly with by the nhs you know she just walks into a hospital right. gets her immunotherapy walks out no billing no uh you know getting a wallet out at any point um whatever anyway so that's that's mm -hmm. one that i 
that that gets me a lot. I guess like uh, you know, it, in in terms of things that like drive me most insane, it's actually the kind of the lib objections to Medicare for all that really piss me mm-hmm. off. Because like you can really, you know, you can like you can hate a Republican objection, you can really sink your teeth into that. But when it's these like, oh no, of course, of course, I want Medicare for all. Don't we all want Medicare for all? I just think that the best way to get there is a public option. Mm-hmm. That that shit drives <laughs> drives me up the wall. That drives mm-hmm. me bananas because it's just. You know, how do you how do you engage with someone who's just being so disingenuous, you know? Well, yeah. What is that really? I mean, what is that really revealing? Because mm-hmm. do, do they really want I mean, is is it really that they I mean, is there any glimmer that they care about Medicare for all in that? Yeah, I've, I've like I've gone back and forth on this, like especially because of Warren. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I I think there are people who do genuinely believe that uh, and that they're, they're misguided, but they believe that the politics of it is uh, that you, it couldn't Medicare for all couldn't pass the Senate uh, and a public option could. So we should do that first. And like, you know, they, they actually believe the Warren thing. I don't think Warren believes that. Like, I mean, <laughs> if she believed it, right. maybe she would have proposed it in March instead of in November, instead of being attacked for supporting Medicare for all for six months and then being like, oh, what are you talking about? No, I support a public option first. Like, didn't you didn't you see that? Like, you know, just completely pulling out of her ass. Um, but I do think that there are, you know, the the normies of the world, um, you know, people who are not like Democratic strategists. I do think that there are people who think that that is how the politics um, of it right. work and that, that that is the best strategic way to getting Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. I think they are incredibly wrong. Um, and I think you'd have to be kind of a dummy to think that <laughs> like, because the thing for me is like, if a public option is good enough to be worth passing, then you're, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at like their understanding of what politics in the Senate are. They're talking about politics in the Senate being roughly what they are right now. You know, they're saying with politics as they are in the Senate now, you couldn't pass Medicare for all, but you could pass a public option. That's bullshit. Like, of course, no, something big would have to change either Mm -hmm. way. Like either way, something big is going to have to change. You are not going to get a public option that is good past the Senate. Like right. any more than you're going to get Medicare for all. Like it's it's ridiculous. The idea that like fucking Joe Manchin is going to vote for Elizabeth Warren's uh, public option plan with its like five percent premiums or whatever, it's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when I sat down with Ryan Grimm for this very series, you know, part of um, he's been in DC a long time, and I think he's you know in a position where he also like you is sort of allowed to be publicly more left, you know, and colleagues are jealous of it from other publications yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know he's done his time working in uh lib outlets like huffington post etc and uh, politico and you know he said like um my anxiety is that we need a massive sea change you know we need to be like turning over staffers by the dozens because this sort of uh pessimism that leads to incrementalism is a d- toxic disease that's spread like a virus and people are just sort of infected with Mm. incrementalism right you know um and it's sort of like at that point it's like how to fight back do we need um to like completely elect a bunch of new people into the senate is it about their staffers is the media you know and it's like very easy to sort of get lost in that and like retreat to like public option is the one that seems easier at this point Mm -hmm. i think you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And I think there's probably a bit of a generational thing, too. I mean, I think part of the reason that so many more young people 
support Medicare for all other than just that we're left here in general. It's like, if you, you know, I'm 29, like I was 18 when uh, Barack Obama was elected and mm-hmm. I was a huge Obama baby. I was like, this guy, this guy gets it. Change you can believe in, you know, all that shit really believed it and was so disappointed. Um, and you know, the first big thing that I remember being disappointed on was the public option fight. Um, and same. Yeah. 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 I remember just being like, Oh, he's not the real deal. Uh, this, (laughs) this sucks. Um, and I think, you know, experiencing the Obama, like, you know, experiencing the Obama presidency as, uh, you know, my, my first, you know, I, I started like really getting into America as a concept and, you know, committing (laughs) to the idea of living here or so, you know, about that about coincided with Obama being elected. And so for me, you know, my American life, as it were, has been the the first years were the Obama years and watching, I don't know how you could watch all of that and not come away thinking that pretty much everyone involved with that has to quit um, and shouldn't be listened to again. Right. You know, I mean, when you have friggin' Jim Messina and Rahm Emanuel out there being like, well, the thing about for all is it's unrealistic it's like you do not get to talk about this you were wrong about the entire thing everything all of your assumptions were completely (laughs) wrong and i do not want to hear from you you know Um, yeah i yeah i think rama rama manuel should uh lose his uh license to speak in public yeah (laughs) yeah i think that's i think that's pretty much right um so yeah i mean I, i do think there's like a little bit of a generational thing there um and you know i don't know there's maybe just like a desperation thing too like if you are that if you are super desperate for Medicare for all, um, you know, the idea of it's all the people that sold you the, the affordable care act and said, no, this is going to be the, this, this technocratic fix is going to be the one that does it. You know, it's just, you, you can't believe that again. Um, you know, especially if you have health problems, um, or, you know, like big bills or, or whatever, you know, you, you hear something that the same people who told you that the marketplace was going to, the like affordable care act marketplace was going to be universal healthcare. Um, you can't you just like don't have it in you to believe that again right exactly i mean so uh, like one one question i would have is this is the sort of like the edifice hasn't gone away you still got the like the affordable care acts i don't know the people who are like carrying its corpse around uh you know and just saying like look look at how wonderful this living dancing creature is i mean what (laughs) what exactly where do you see like there being a, a a pressure point there like where is the sort of like weak link in that chain among uh, sort of the, the people who might otherwise be doing that kind of work? I mean, is there is there like a some kind of point at which you can see uh, some of them sort of like breaking off and saying like, no, actually something else is possible or are they just sort of wedded to? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of these people care very strongly who is winning so if bernie wins um and is able to like defeat this sort of class of people that are in dc that will make the biggest difference um you know (laughs) it is it is kind of funny to me to think about the people who hitched their wagon to warren early on Mm -hmm. (laughs) now now that she's so low in the polls (laughs) it's just really funny to me to think about them like they really thought that she was like the you know the the non-centrist who could win um and now it looks like she is not that um it's just funny it's just funny to me to think about those people right i mean i i think it was funny too how um how people sort of like laundered that 
that fall in the polls as like, oh, it's because she said she was into Medicare for all. Oh, my you know, God. It's like she took too long to come to the center. And you also wrote about how that happened when Kamala dropped out as well. People said, oh, well, it's because she she flirted with single payer that <laughs> tanked her campaign. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's like, well, if that were true, would would Bernie be winning? I mean, it just it makes no sense. None of it makes any sense. And, you know, I, right. I don't actually think I'm not really i'm not necessarily sold on the idea that like warren her poll numbers tanked because she flip-flopped on medicare right. for all and like that alienated people because i think the people who left her campaign were probably you know a, a good chunk of them were probably people who uh i don't know i mean i like i wrote in my piece like that you know voters can tell when you're full of shit and um i think i think that was that was definitely a big part of it for warren but i think it was also just that like her support was like you know, little Buttigieg bros who, um, you know, were like never, never really in it for that reason or whatever. Um, but you know, the, the idea of attributing it to supporting Medicare for all is just absurd. Um, right. So yeah, I think, you know, may, I think maybe Bernie winning is, um, is, is a big one for that. And also, you know, I do have a kind of like long-term kind of sort of Zen, like optimism about this stuff, just that the system is so bad that no no one can argue that this is good and eventually something is going to have to give something is going to have to change because it is just getting so insane and the costs just keep going up and like eventually you know people are going to get mad about <laughs> spending the money more than the people who are dying i'm sure but you know with like you mm-hmm. know hospital prices as being so high and deductibles and everything like it's it's not sustainable politically to argue like you know i've always felt like this about about the partnership like i think if they were smart and it's hard for them because it's such a broad coalition of of healthcare industry interests with completely diverging you yes, know so, with so many different portfolios to balance yeah, yeah exactly and also you know like if you have you know the hospitals and the insurance companies those those two have completely divergent interest in the insurance companies should technically want hospital prices to be lower and hospitals want to be able to charge as much as they possibly can. And like, ultimately I think that's kind of hamstrung them because if the partnership was smart, then they would have been advocating for a very shitty public option. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like some kind of Biden style public option that like, is not going to help anyone. It's not intending to actually cover most people. It's not intending to replace private insurance or whatever, but hospitals are just so greedy. They can't, they can't like see um, their way to supporting anything that would lower the percentage of patients they have who come from private insurance at all. Um, and I think that's kind of hamstrung them because the, you know, the sort of partnership line, like, Oh, we just need uh, reforms. Like we just need to uh, reform the ACA or strengthen the ACA or whatever. Over time, mm-hmm. that's going to just look more and more ridiculous, I think. Um, and like, I don't know what will have to shift. I don't know whether it will be, um, you know, a burning presidency or something we can't envision years down the line or, you know, people like, you know, taking to the streets and like smashing windows or whatever. Like eventually something is going to have to uh, shift because you just cannot keep pretending that this is a system at all, let alone like a good healthcare system. Right. Totally. I mean, it's like, it's interesting to see how, uh, the, the sort of messaging about the necessity of private insurance money in order to like keep medical practices or like hospitals afloat sort of is disseminated. One of the, one of the, uh, clips we talked about in our podcaster roundtable, which is, uh, you know, um, the, 
I guess the finale of Medicare for All week is mm-hmm. uh, the story that went viral a couple of weeks ago about the doctor offering free surgery in exchange for community service. Oh, and, you know, all of the local news reports like repeatedly focused on, well, if this kind hearted doctor <laughs> who's forcing people to work in exchange for medical care you know, which they said, kind hearted doctor giving away his services for free. How is his practice going to stay afloat? And everyone said, oh, don't worry. He makes sure to still take plenty of private insurance payments and patients oh because God. that's what keeps his business open. And it's like, wow, this has just been so blatantly like it's trickled down from the, mm-hmm. you know, the nectar of of the partnership into like the way that we're covering a human interest of the week story in wherever, you know what I mean? It's, it's really kind of evil looking and terrifying, Mm. but at the end of the day, I also think it's exciting because to me, that's sort of, that's, that's such a mask off situation that, um, I feel like they're just so desperate right now, yeah. but I don't know if I'm in a bubble. Like, do you feel that at all in DC that there is like a desperate energy from these people? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I, I too am in, in the bubble. And as I said, I don't, don't get invited to the party, so I'm not the best source uh, for insider thinking on this. However, um, I do think that there is, I, I, I agree on the desperation front. Um, the partnership has always seemed a little bit desperate to me. They've got a little mm-hmm. bit thirsty energy. Um, and I don't really know how, uh, I mean, they seem pretty big. Like they fund all these national ads and stuff. I don't really know how successful you could call them. I don't really know if people mm-hmm. are like afraid of them in particular. I mean, it, obviously in general, like members of Congress and staff and stuff are afraid of the industry as a whole. Um, right. You know, some of the, some of the rhetoric from Trump on drug prices over the last couple of years, like he kept talking about how he wanted to lower drug prices for, for his people and so on. Um, and you know, there were a few articles about like, you know, you know, pharma, you know, like their year of big losses or whatever. Cause like they didn't manage to defeat certain things or whatever. But then if you look at what mm-hmm. Trump has actually done on drug prices, it's fucking nothing of course. And I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that like, you know, he's just got, he's got, he'll like shout at his aides, like we need to do something about the drug prices. And I'll be like, absolutely, Mr. President, we're doing this, this and this. And then nothing happens, of course. Um, right. And Congress hasn't been much better either. No, Congress is, is fucking terrible. Like Pelosi's drug pricing bill was just like obviously a disgrace. And it was a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. And of course it was going to be, it was always going to die on arrival. So why did she do that? Like, why did she write such a bad bill? Yeah, why not make a good messaging bill? Right. It just, I completely <laughs> have never understood that, but it's because she genu- I think genuinely believed that, well, I, you know, there's two options. Either she genuinely believed that, you know, there was a, a bill that she could write that would get some Republican votes, or she just genuinely does not agree with uh, <laughs> lowering drug prices, <laughs> genuinely lowering drug prices, does not want to give anything to the left. You know, mm-hmm. um, if, if nothing's going to happen anyway, then why, why empower the left with a good bill? Um, so yeah, I don't know, but I do think there, there is, some at least confusion on their part and that's a good sign like what you know why why are people (laughs) why are people talking about medicare for all don't you realize xyz um and also just you know like i said like things are so bad like you know Mm -hmm. if if deductibles are eight grand right now like what are they going to be in two years what are they going to be in five years you know like things are just on such an insane trajectory that 
I have to believe that something will break because either either we will just become like a you know just like a fully non-functional country for people who make you know less than a hundred thousand dollars a year or mm-hmm. you know we <laughs> or something will change like I just I just feel like things are so dysfunctional on a daily basis in healthcare that for for nothing to happen just feels like it can't happen especially if you think about how little time it's been since i mean it's only 10 years since the affordable care act like in policy terms it's no time at all um right you know it, it this conversation should not be happening really like that was supposed to be it that was supposed to be the healthcare reform and the fact that we're talking about you know, Medicare for all or, or a public option or any of that stuff now is a sign that it, that it was wrong. And, you know, I just, I just feel like something has to come of that at least. No, I think that's actually a very hopeful message. Actually. I, I like that. You know, it's, um, if you think about it, regardless of who the nominee is, like, I have a feeling that Medicare for all, I'm not trying to make a prediction basically mm-hmm. is why I just said that statement. But I think regardless of who the nominee is like Medicare for all will be, a topic in the general. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if it were to be like the only person running on actual Medicare for all and Trump in a debate, it, I think it would be really interesting to see where the messaging shifts, especially considering that despite the fact that Trump's, you know, at, at Davos uh, saying, oh, we're going to cut Social Security and Medicare, that's a big percentage, whatever. Um, that he really ran on like, we're going to give people health care. We're going to give people drug prices. You it's going to be great. Right, <laughs> exactly. I think it'll be really interesting to see how uh, yeah. that plays out in real time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the funny thing about Trump is that you could, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a reasonably c- clever candidate could easily trick him into supporting Medicare for all on stage because he has reportedly said things like, why don't we just give everyone Medicare in the mm-hmm. past, which is so, so funny. And like, it would be so great if Bernie could, you know, trick him into saying that, you know, cause he, you know that he, he doesn't really have, he doesn't have beliefs. He doesn't have ideology or whatever. Um, but he does kind of occasionally say things that he consents are kind of the right populist, uh, you know, if, if it was a sort of genuinely like populist party, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that might be, that might be their direction. Um, so that would, that would be pretty funny, but I, you know, I agree. And I, I do think that if they nominate Biden, Trump's going to he's going to talk about Biden's socialist health care plan anyway. So um, you might as well right. make it <laughs> might as well make it the one with the actually good plan. Um, but, you know, I just yeah. feel like there's just so much energy around this this Medicare for all movement. I can't imagine it just kind of going away if, you know, if if the health if the next health care reform is not good enough, you know, if whatever they pass in 2021 or 2022 or whatever doesn't really make a big difference. I think we're at a point now where, you know, you can't put that energy back in the box, basically. Like, you know, something Mm -hmm. something is going to have to change. That's actually, I really like that you put it that way because one criticism I think that people who support Medicare for All often have to face, or people who... I don't know. It's it's like the burden of proof is always higher when you want more, right? Yeah. You have to totally. like show it over and over again. But like the one thing that they that that keeps, you know, always comes up is just that they're not realistic, that they're not realistic, that there's this realism that they're that they don't have. But I think what you illustrate is that that the realism is that the system is getting worse and worse every day, that people are like the instability of people's insurances is, is growing worse and worse and the price is going up. And so like that is a sort of uh, sort of a hard 
force that's that's propelling things forward and to the the unrealistic thing is to say no you know what there's a lot of energy on this we're not going to take advantage of it right like yeah. that's that's the like somehow more mm-hmm. pie in the sky thing yeah no exactly and you know the other thing is i just think like hospital pricing is so insane and is going to they are you know the the logic of the of capitalism dictates that what they are going to do is keep making it more insane as as they can get away with and because there is absolutely no limit on what they can get away with right now it's going to just keep growing and growing and other actors in the healthcare system will just get pissed off at that like at some point like people are going to get right. so mad at them you know like you got all these different you know people in the healthcare system grifting each other you've got like the you know the drug companies grifting insurance and you've got the hospitals grifting insurance and you've got insurance grifting everyone else like eventually that that house cards has got to collapse oh totally i think we're seeing like a rapid consolidation and eventually if we continue at the pace we are like the medicare advantage market will overtake i think 70 percent of medicare recipients by 2030 i think you're seeing like private practices close left and right and the consolidation of of providers you see mm-hmm. a shift away from like fee for service payment for providers and a shift towards salaried positions because the cost of billing is so high that doctors can't afford to be in private practice anymore because the the billing systems have gotten so complex so as like you know, as hospitals and PBMs and private insurance and pharmacies, you know, all fight to extract as much capital out of the patient and each other as possible, you know, they are like just consolidating the industry under them. And if we don't do something now, we're going to end up with like, four companies fighting each other but it's like all the hospitals versus all of the insurance companies and there's just one so we might end up with one insurance company either way um it's just like how we want to do it at this point (laughs) right exactly yeah and i guess uh, you know the only hope that we can have really is maybe it gets so bad it starts to affect people who have the kind of nice employer-sponsored insurance that most people in dc have too like if if the plans here get worse you know i mean i've had some pretty shitty plans you know at like mm-hmm. big institutions here um but not you know nowhere near as shitty as like marketplace plans or, or whatever but you know maybe if that starts to get worse right right um we don't want to keep you too long um is there anything that um we should get into that we haven't talked about that you feel like would be good to talk about for this series <laughs> um no, I don't think so. You know, honestly, my brain is fried, but I'm, you know, I trust you no, guys more than anyone. Like, <laughs> and I, oh, oh that's that such nice. a, thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, I, we're, we're so excited that we got to have you be a part of us. I mean, it, it's really been a blast and, um, we appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so um, much. Anytime. It's been a long day at this point. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Libby. You mm-hmm. can follow Libby at Libby C. Watson on Twitter. And um, you can subscribe to the New, York, New Republic, right? Oh, please do. Please subscribe. It, you know, yeah. the, the money doesn't directly go to Feeding Digby, but in a way it kind of does. Um, so that matters to us. It, it yes. does. And it's, it's pretty cheap. It's like, it's I don't know. I can't remember exactly. I think it's like 20 bucks for a print subscription, which is nice because then you get, oh no, it's, it's 30 bucks for a print subscription which means you get the print or 20 bucks for a digital so it's really not that but that's for a whole year so it's not that bad no it's not that bad and it's uh you know support the work of uh 
journalists that are backing you up, right? You know, it's like building a movement together. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, I really Libby. appreciate it. And um, hope to uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week from the Deaf Panel. Subscribe wherever podcasts are distributed to hear a brand new interview on single-payer healthcare every day until the 11th of February. And support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod for patron-only episodes, and to help us make series like Medicare for All Week possible. We are entirely listener-supported and extremely lacking in quality healthcare. Goodbye for now. Until next time patreon.com slash deathpanelpod